This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight, Heather Kennedy with Young Onset Parkinson's Disease talks happiness. We also talk non-alcoholic fatty liver disease with liver specialist Dr. Elnor Ramji. Sex and the single mom? What's that like in a pandemic? Also, the doctor is in again and gives us a skinny on COVID-19. Plus, how do you decide whether to have sex with someone who you are not under lock and quarantine with? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. I was uh, attracted to, shall I say, um, very, very, I have a research background and I was very interested to see um, this abstract that I reviewed called Happiness, a Novel Outcome in Parkinson's Studies and, and other studies as well. Happiness is is something that uh, is, is inherent in people. It's subjective. It's the intrinsic quality of the subjective enjoyment of life. Around 70% of people rate happiness as the most important thing in life. Yet happiness is very difficult to attain for many people, and it can also be a difficult construct to measure. But there's an argument that self-compassion and well-being could serve as reliable indicators for happiness and that we should use these in clinical trials, specifically clinical trials that relate to Parkinson's disease. Joining me on the line is one of the happiest people that I have ever met. Uh, She she and I spoke together recently on a Zoom um, presentation for young onset Parkinson's disease. She is Heather Kennedy, and she is a Parkinson's advocate and writer. Good evening, Heather. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Good. I think my kids would be laughing if they heard the way that you described me because they do see all the emotions here at home. (laughs) All sides, all sides. And that's fair enough. But um, you're a phenomenal motivational speaker. Uh, You were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at a very young age. We think of Parkinson's disease, which is a chronic neurodegenerative disease um for that's that it's associated with older people people who are in their in their 70s or 80s uh we don't think of right. it as someone what age uh were you diagnosed heather around 39 or 40 i noticed symptoms around 35 and they began to get worse and of course they told me that i was a hysterical woman and it must be in my head at first every doctor i saw had a different outcome one thought I had lupus, the next fibromyalgia, then Lyme disease, then just, oh, you're depressed and you're just anxious, which were, you know, the symptoms are very similar and hard to diagnose. I get that. But I, I did become depressed and anxious without a, uh, a diagnosis, actually. Of so course. That made sense. And, yeah. What were your symptoms specifically that you noticed? I played a violin, not very well, not as well as my mom or my aunt or my grandmother or my brother. But just the fact that you could I say play. I play the violin. <laughs> I'm jealous. Yeah, and <laughs> my left hand wasn't working for the vibrato. And I noticed my fine motor skills were slipping, particularly on my left side, or my foot would be dragging, or when I swam, my, my, foot, my head would drag in the water. And I would, I would go to boxing class, and Carlo, my coach, would say, Kennedy, you're leaving your left side open. I'm like, no, I'm not. Bam over and again. So I knew something was wrong, uh, but I didn't know it was neurologic until 
several years later. And, and it must have just shocked you that to, to get a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. You know, I have had several friends die um, unexpectedly, and I do not take life for granted at all, but I sure did take my capabilities for granted. And I notice now that I'm much more grateful than before because I was shocked. I was a dancer. You know, I had that kind of swagger that that a person who knows that they can dance anywhere, anytime had. And now I look a little more like the robot on a dance floor, which is fine. You know, I have a new dance now. (laughs) You learn to adapt. Yeah, you you do. And how would you say... Uh, happiness. I mean, I was so struck by your presentation uh, for the NYIT Young Young Onset Parkinson's Disease presentation that we uh, collectively gave. But you were just amazing and just so upbeat and so positive. And, you know, if I were to guess, I would guess you're just an extremely happy person. Um, how do you feel, um, you know, you certainly you must have been disappointed, but how do you think happiness relates to uh, your diagnosis? Oh, I was devastated. I mean, think about Parkinson's, particularly young onset Parkinson's, when we are um, in the middle of, you know, raising children and and a career and and having to let go while simultaneously mourning all these losses that keep coming, the anxiety, our self-esteem takes a big hit. So to say that I was, you know, handling this with any amount of grace would be a stretch. I was devastated. In fact, that's why I started writing. It was a sense of um, despondency and isolation. And lo and behold, I'd send my little message out in a bottle. And just like the police song, there were a thousand messages back at me with people saying, I know exactly how you feel. Thank you for giving it some language. And we are devastated too. Now, what do we do? So I've done a lot of PSAs on um, things like using anger and putting that into your workouts or, um, you know, your goals change or happiness change. But happiness is tricky. Mm, there's nothing worse than the feeling that if you don't, if you're not happy or if you, if you come as you really are in the moment, that you won't be loved. There's nothing worse than that false Pollyanna cheerfulness, like, be happy now, you're arriving at Disneyland, go everybody, smile, jump up and down. So it's not like that. Happiness is fleeting, and you're right, it is immeasurable, but it's not something that's a permanent fixed state, and to let go of mm, you know, making ourselves be happy, like with those memes in that Pollyanna state, is exactly what is keeping me rather happy. Now, happiness is often measured by the concepts of well-being and self-compassion. And so, uh, obviously, when you were um, at your worst, when you had were symptomatic yeah. and doctors were dismissing you, as they often do for women, unfortunately, um, how mm-hmm. difficult was it to to be happy and then to find that happiness again? Uh, and, and was self-compassion a part of it? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I do have a long history of studying religions, including Buddhism, as philosophies. So let me be clear, I'm not proselytizing here at all. But I do use meditation and the compassion that I've learned in the Buddhist uh, precepts and the Buddhist teachings many times. Over, For example, there's something that my friend has called crazy wisdom. It's when you feel persecuted and you can still smile and send the person back a bit of love. Now, I have not mastered that quite yet, (laughs) but I do have a lot of what they call mudita, which is uh, sympathetic joy. So if people around me are experiencing joy, I'm not like a codependent, but I can feel their joy 
uh, you know, I can feel it and take on some of that joy myself. Because like they say, you know, we may not remember the details of someone that we're speaking with or details about life, but we remember how we felt when we were around someone. And I want to be the kind of person that's happy to be around myself. So that well-being, that compassion spreads out to others naturally if we have it for ourselves. You know, letting go of trying to be um, perfect. You know, they. it's also, happiness was also described in the article that you cite, that Bastian Bloom's article, um, the perception of our position in life in the context of things. So I have had to shift my perception of my quality of life, for sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's rated, 69% of people rate happiness as the most important thing in life. Yet if you look on social media, you see that so many people are seeking happiness. And I'm oh. not sure they know exactly what they're seeking. Yeah, comparisons are awful, in particular for women. We love to compare our insides to everyone else's outsides. And of course, we're the only insecure person in the room worried that our, you know, our dress doesn't fit or our slippers slip is showing or whatever, of course, right? Meanwhile, everyone else in the room is probably thinking something similar. And if not that, if you do run into a room and everybody has all the answers, and everybody is the smartest person in the room, get the heck out of there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Heather Kennedy, thank you so much. Uh, You've provided us with great wisdom and and a new word, Modita. Is that it? it? Yeah, I love it. I love it. How can people get in touch with you? I write as Kathleen Kiddo, and across social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you can certainly find me and probably even contact me directly. I'll get back to you sooner or later. But I do have a website, it's just KathleenKiddo.com, and I'll, I'll update that one of these days. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm going to be publishing soon. Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll definitely have yeah. you back because uh, happiness, I think, is a, is a crucial subject. Thank you very much. There was a study published in the CMAJ open this month that was co-authored by UBC liver specialist Dr. Al-Noor Ramji. It's the first study of its kind to forecast the impact of fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and its most severe form, NASH, on Canadians over the next decade. And he joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Ramji. Good evening. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. M- many people associate liver disease with people who drink alcohol, but uh, that's not the case with non-alcoholic, as the name says, fatty liver disease. Tell me what that is. It's exactly as you said. Um, there's unfortunately a very strong association with liver disease and alcohol, and this is completely different. Um, and truly, it's non-alcoholic, and you see fat within the liver, which we can get for, for persons who, for example, have obesity or diabetes. And like any liver disease, it can progress onto advanced disease causing cirrhosis and potential for liver cancer, liver death, and the need for liver transplant. And so at this time, I often say uh, during this time of COVID, it's never been more important to stay healthy, eat nutritiously, be well, um, how important is that in terms yeah. of uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? You know, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you, you've seen that all these adverts about the shelves are empty from yeast and flour, etc., and, and, and that is concerning. 
um, when you look at that and the context of persons not being able to exercise as much because of the types of exercise they used to. I, I think, you know, it's trying to develop new strategies of, of trying to keep healthy, eating healthy um, and exercising because that is a major aspect of trying to reduce fatty liver disease. And now there's a lot of people who have problems with fat around the middle of their body. I hear it from a lot of women in perimenopause or menopause and they blame it on that. But I actually think it's probably the result of not exercising or they kind of slow down their exercising at that time. How dangerous is um, waste obesity? It's one of those factors which are important. Unfortunately, I don't think it's as well understood. Um, on, on top of that, I think it's it's quite a complex aspect in that there are multiple potential aspects. You know, does perimenopause affect it? Um, there are some persons who are metabolically, I'd say, almost ingrained of developing aspects of fatty liver disease or obesity. So it's not purely persons don't exercise enough or people are not as vigilant with their diet. I, I think there is something inside that we don't truly appreciate or understand either. But certainly, you know, aspects of trying to improve it is that. I've often told patients that don't get discouraged if you do exercise and you are very good with the diet, which many persons are who are obese or are diabetic and who develop fatty liver disease and they can't seem to lose weight that don't be discouraged, continue to do what you're doing, because certainly it does help. It may not be the only answer to this. Very interesting. And how many Canadians um, have fatty liver disease? So that's the concern we had. And, and that's why the study, I think, for us was so important. 25% of Canadians have fatty liver disease. And the biggest concern is I think most are unaware or those who are aware don't really realize their potential impact that probably 5% can get advanced disease, can get cirrhosis of the liver. And, you know, when you tell somebody, okay, they're drinking too much alcohol or persons who drink too much alcohol know that, you know, I could develop bad liver disease. It's, it's ingrained and they're aware of it. With fatty liver disease, I think many people, I, some people may not be aware. And, and then you tend to negate the effect because you say, well, if I have diabetes or overweight, it's part and parcel of it, but don't really realize the potential impact it can have long-term. And how does fat get into the liver? Um, mostly in the context of metabolism, really. Um, and, and so one of the most important aspects, they would say diet-wise, is avoidance of sugar. And, and sugar is, is what I would term pure evil. Um, you know, that is broken down and then made into fat, essentially, to one aspect or another. So sucrose, so pop that we drink, the juices that we drink, um, e even starches. So we're looking at um, rice and potatoes and bread and pastas. And I'm never going to say stay completely away from all of this. But, you know, like with anything in life, it's, it's moderation and, and trying to minimize those negative effects or negative constituents and, and trying to choose. It's healthier choices. So choose you know, the, the whole wheat flour as opposed to white flour, for example. You know, ch share a cheesecake, share a slice of cheesecake with two or three people or eat part of it, don't eat the whole one. And, and what are the symptoms that people with fatty liver disease have? The, the concerning part and the scary part is you may not have any symptoms. And, and it really is more often not, honestly, found incidentally. So when patients get referred to my office, 
they've complained of abdominal discomfort or bloating, which a lot of people have. And they get an ultrasound and they found a fatty liver. And sometimes it says severe fatty liver and they're referred for that. When the pain has got nothing to do with the liver, they say they had bloating, they've got other things going on. But it's found incidentally or if your family doctor is checking the liver enzymes and those are elevated, but it's not always elevated. Right. So it's not always easy to find, which is one of the biggest challenges we have. Well, thank you for the uh, the study and the, the report and for coming on the show and educating us about this. It's uh, great information, Dr. Ramji. Coronavirus, COVID-19, maybe just getting out to a club and uh, perhaps Brandy's in Vancouver and uh, where there has been um, a, a few cases, apparently. Uh, so dating is difficult enough, never mind during a pandemic. And it's even more difficult when you are a single mom. So joining me on the line is Laura to talk about uh, this this particular subject that, uh, you know, has just made dating that much crazier. Good evening, Laura. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Oh, that's great. That's great. That means a whole lot uh, more in this time of yes. COVID-19. Uh, so single parent dating is difficult enough, uh, but being single and dating is challenging. Uh, but when you're single, you're a single mom and you're dating or trying to date in a pandemic, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> well, you know, it's it's an interesting topic in the sense that just a single mom and dating alone is can span array of different uh, connotations or maybe even stereotypes. And, you know, I think as a single parent, first and foremost for myself, I put my child first and my life first, and then everything has to fall into place with the dating. But given the pandemic, there are so many other factors in just how to meet someone. Where do you go? What do you do? Um, you know, how do you get to know this person and how do you spark chemistry? Exactly. And let's just step it back a little bit. Um, so how does one know they are ready to date when they're a single mom, when they become a single mom? Like that must take some time. And Yeah, I think it's really important, um, like I said, to put the family first and put yourself first in the sense that you need to take care of your livelihood and your career ambitions and education and of course, your family, and try to meet someone where authentically you can connect and be like-minded. And I think that that's really uh, difficult these days because, you know, on Tinder, you can just swipe right or left and you don't know anything about that person. So, you know, you want to get into kind of a more authentic relationship, given that you have a family to care for and and also protect too. Yeah, absolutely. And is it important for a single mom to know what she is looking to find? Uh, in other words, you want to have <laughs> perhaps you want to have a relationship. You want to be clear. You know, you just want to date a few people. Or you just want to hang out, or you want to you know find the one again, the next one. <laughs> well, you know that's probably the million dollar question because I think when you think, oh, I you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm ready to have a relationship. Um, you get a few coffee dates under your belt and things don't go so great on those dates or, uh, you know, you go up for a glass of wine and you're like, I don't want to go after out after 8 o'clock. I'm going to stay home and watch Netflix and chill because it's also a lot of work 
to get out there and think I'm going to find the one. So when the pandemic hit, I had actually just met someone and we were going to go for coffee. Everything had shut down on the day that we were going to go for coffee. There wasn't anything open. We managed to find coffees and sit in his truck. But we had the greatest three and a half hour conversation about just getting to know one another. And I think that's kind of what you have to go back to if you can't say, I'm going to get married, I'm going to you know, find the next one. It just has to be a little bit more organic, and especially now with everything going on. Of course, of course. Well, I, I hope that uh, relationship continues. It sounds like it got off to a, a great start. Do you have any questions out there? Or if you have you, are you a single mom? Are you trying to navigate the dating field in this pandemic? one 399 9898 if you'd like to contribute to the program. Um, you know, is it important? So, so you met somebody um, on the day that everything pretty much shut down. Mm-hmm. And so were you able to continue without getting too personal? Um, you know, did the pandemic put a damper on things? <laughs> you know, it did. It did it. And I think it was mostly because of the chemistry or the time spent together. And I'm aware of social distancing. And I think it's important to find someone like-minded with that because there's all sorts of different theories out there about the coronavirus. But it was important to me and my family, and I don't introduce someone to my family very soon on. So, you know, it did kind of fizzle out. We stay in touch and and stuff like that. But um, it's not the same as, um, you know, getting out there and going for a walk with someone or going for a hike or those kinds of things. Right. And are you you more nervous to get out there and uh, perhaps meet somebody that you have met online because you feel you might be risking, you know, the life of your child or you have other kids to consider, other people to consider? Yeah, I think somewhat, for sure. And I just, I think that it's really important that, you know, if you do meet someone and you're getting to know them online, um, how do you connect with the chemistry? And, you know, the big million dollar question again is, do you kiss with your mask on or mask off? Like, well, apparently the recommendation is to kiss, is, you know, it is to use a mask <laughs> during intimacy. <laughs> and so do everything but kiss. <laughs> That's the advice from the Sunday Night Hell Show now. <laughs> everything but. It used to be, you know, don't do that. <laughs> Just kiss. Now it's all changed on the first date, apparently. No kissing anymore to start out with. We're starting out <laughs> much more I know. passionately. Um, how important is it to you, Laura, that... Um, um, somebody have the same values that you have in terms of respect for social distancing and hand washing um, and, uh, you know, abiding by these new laws that, that we live by? Well, I think 100%. And I think it just is uh, layers of your value system. So it's really important that, you know, you are like-minded with the pandemic and what's going on in social distancing. It's also important, like, in how that person carries themselves when they're out and about, how they're getting kind of reintroduced to their work or their world or that kind of thing via the pandemic. So I think 100%. And, and I think, actually, that's a very interesting start-off point for people because you find it very quickly how that person feels given um, everything that's going on. And it's also difficult to date, I would imagine, if you don't have family or friends that you can switch off, um, you know, that you can get somebody to look after your child or your children. Um, 
say you have six kids and you want to go dating, that's going to be a bit of a challenge. Um, so do you find that uh, friends of yours, do you help each other out in terms of uh, dating and, and getting out there to meet the particular person? Yeah, we do. And we have a small group of, you know, there are single parents that definitely help each other. And I have wonderful friends who, um, you know, definitely uh, throughout even the pandemic, we've had to stay in touch due to different support systems or people losing jobs or uh, just kind of the uh, devastation is losing the job and how it's affected, you know, close families. So our, I think our support network has actually gotten quite a bit stronger and I'm really grateful for that. That's fantastic. And there are some apps like Hello Mom, uh, is it hellomamas.com or mommeetmom.com um, where you can actually uh, meet up with like-minded people if you don't have shared custody or if you don't have family or, or friends, maybe you're new to the area or something, but it's a, it's a way to actually meet people. So there's, you know, if you can't find it on in the store it's certainly definitely an app and and what would be your best advice are, are you still optimistic that you'll meet somebody in this pandemic i mean we're looking like we're going to be living this for a little while unless a vaccine comes along which the earliest would be six months i heard dr fauci say that um some vaccine trials were entering into the clinical phase three and and so which is which is great but that requires six months and so what what are your hopes well, I think it's been interesting in continuing the online dating. And I have, you know, uh, I guess rekindled with some other male friends who are like-minded in the sense of the pandemic. And, you know, we banter back and forth and things like that and look forward to getting out once all the restaurants open and going for a glass of wine or things like that. And and I, I think that you are hopeful. But with anything, like given everything going on, I think it's just important to have compassion for the other person, where they're coming from, ensure that your family is safe and the public health issues are a, a priority, and also to the jobs. The job people are feeling stressed because of loss of the job. So having that empathetic, empathetic kind of feel towards dating, I think, has made me more open to even maybe the types of people I would date. Right. And and do you think like they there are these, you know, apparently it's quite uh, sexy, appealing. You know, it makes a guy more attractive if he has children. <laughs> do you think it uh, is, is it something that when mothers have, of course, we have a double standard for men and women and they in this world. Um, but uh, do you think it's uh, easier, you know, or for men perhaps that have children to date somebody or um, for women? <laughs> can't even believe I asked that question. <laughs> yeah, you know, but that's a really good question, Maureen. And I think there is a double standard. I think it is, you know, sexy for men to, you know, have their divorce midlife and have kids and, you know, get the hot car and all that stuff. Whereas a woman, they're like, oh, you know, maybe she comes with some baggage or maybe she's, you know, uh, why is she not married? Or there is definitely a connotation around that. But I mean, Given everything that's going on in the world, it's not good to buy into stereotypes and everybody's got their own lives and their own stories. And I just, I know who I am and um, I know the type of person I want to include in my life. And I think it's easy to, given the online atmosphere of dating right now, kind of um, be open to a variety of different people, but also be able to discern, you know, um, where is that person coming from and, and then how do you 
going to promote yourself in the dating world as well. Exactly. Well, Laura, thank you so much for sharing all of your feelings. And I I wish you the best of luck. I feel somebody fabulous coming (laughs) online for you. And the second that happens, I want you to come back and tell us all about it. Well, that's great. Love your show. And thanks so much for having me as a guest. Oh, thank you so much. That's so sweet of you. the one and only Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? I I understand you've been busy. (laughs) I've been a little busy. Yes, I I was amongst the missing this week, and I do apologize (laughs) for that. (laughs) Well, I I, I sent you all sorts of interesting articles, and normally I get a reaction before I hit send, and so I I know you've been busy. (laughs) Yes, it's been, you know, opening up, I have to say, uh, having my clinical practice was pretty much shut down for two months and maybe even a little bit longer than that. And, uh, you know, oftentimes I need to see patients in person. And so, you know, things have changed in my clinic as I'm sure they have in yours. And so we're seeing patients spaced further apart. Everybody is desperate to desperate to see me, (laughs) desperate to come in and get their issue dealt with. Um, and so, and I'm also working more days and, and so it's been, you know, just quite a bit busier. And then, of course, you know, on the home front, did get a text, though, from my husband that he's cleaning up. I'm not sure if that's real or not, or that's fake news. Yes, exactly. It was perfect. Anyway, um, so, you know, things were, were back in business, if you will. And, and so life has changed and we're we're, you know, full on PPE and, um, you know, and, and having to tell patients, you know, you need to wear a mask. Some patients don't believe that COVID is real. Some think that it's over. Uh, some can't breathe with the mask on. Uh, so there's, there's a lot to contend with. I don't know if you're finding that in your clinical practice. I, I am. And, and we've spoken before, Maureen, that um, people still have a lot of anxiety about going out and into the public. And, and it's really, really understandable. I think the big news in BC right now is that we have got the green light to go ahead with phase three. And that's important because it means that people can start to travel. The film industry can open up. But I think what's important to remember is that the virus isn't gone. The virus is still out in the community. So as we're thinking about travel and holidays, you know, the, the health minister, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has said, you know, we still expected to keep our two-meter distances. And it's going to make it a bit awkward, right? So on one hand, we're saying we can go to hotels and motels and parks and so forth, um, but but really try to respect the people who are working in the hospitality industry and not impose on their space, but try to keep the two-meter distance. And then it gets even more complicated when you think about the places that we normally attend in those places, like pools and hot tubs and gyms and play areas, um, because, you know, how do you keep a two-meter distance there? And, um, you know, it's exciting and, 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 and it's very positive, and I think a lot for a lot of us it came on earlier than anticipated, which is great. Um, but it also means we need to be careful. And you're right; I think there is still some angst in the community. I, I think the news um, about that one nightclub um, that that had a number of cases in downtown Vancouver is a great example of of how you know just one or two situations can can cause a, a little, little rise in cases. Absolutely, and I believe you're referring to Brandy's Exotic Show Lounge, which I thought that all of the strip clubs had shuttered uh, long before the pandemic, in part because so much porn had gone online. But but Brandy's Exotic Show Lounge is still there, and obviously um, a number of people gathered there. 
Um, the, it makes you wonder whether they had plexiglass up, though. I don't know. It does make you wonder that. I was going to say about the hotels. Now, I've just heard this, that the hotels, if they have a pool, you have to schedule your time in the pool um, according to room. So each room sets up uh, a time that that family or that cohort um, you know, gets an hour in the pool. So they're not letting everybody go in together. No, not at all. And I think that's the key to this is staggering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even And so that not everybody can be there at one time. I know that I have some friends that were looking into our um, great Okanagan wineries and other wineries around BC, and you can't just show up at a winery now, right, as you could before. You have to schedule and so that they can keep the numbers down to the, the allowed number of people in, within any, um, in any building, in any, in any room. That's right. They're doing all the wine tours slightly differently. Um, so if you have a question for Dr. Gurdip Parhar, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. The lines are open and Brendan is more than happy to take the call. He's got a Superman shirt on tonight. <laughs> So he can do it, okay? <laughs> I'm going to wear my Superwoman shirt next week. <laughs> I have to get one first. <laughs> that is a, an awesome shirt, I have to say. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I need one. <laughs> I didn't feel like Superwoman at all this week. I felt like super exhausted woman. Okay, let me ask you, Dr. Parhar, about vitamin D. There's some uh, suggestion that vitamin D is, uh, is the answer here to COVID-19. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that would be, in fact, I had a couple of patients asking me about that um, over telemedicine. I, I sadly um, have very little work-life balance, and so I had a clinic today, even on a Sunday. <laughs> so I had a patient, um, I call it work-life blend, um, but um, I had a patient who asked about it today. And, and in essence, it's an association right now, so we're not sure about cause and effect. So there was a study done that studied a whole bunch of different um, aspects of people's health who were on ventilators and very sick with COVID. And the large majority of them, I think almost percent were found to be vitamin D deficient. Now that doesn't mean that people that are low in vitamin D are more prone to COVID-19 complications. We haven't gotten that far yet, but we do know that there's an association. So um, having said that, I think everybody should probably watch their vitamin D levels. And if you're not getting a lot of sunlight, which is needed to sort of form vitamin D, you know, think about um, a little supplement um, in either a multivitamin or, or, or asking your doctor what supplement you should take. Um, so that, that is something. And, and, and obviously, for osteoporosis and, and other conditions, it's helpful as well. I recommend heading out into the ocean on your paddleboard <laughs> and with, laying with, out there for two hours. <laughs> with, 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 with sunscreen. I mean, there was one other not-so-good news that I wanted to share in the COVID environment is that we've been talking a lot about asymptomatic people, and especially in the U.S. now when there's been young people you know, going at, out to beaches and saying, well, I'm not going to get sick, so, I can, um, so it's okay for me because I'm not in the high-risk group. So unfortunately, a study was, um, pub- well, it was fortunate that it was published, but the unfortunate result were that people with asymptomatic or very mild cases of COVID-19 were actually found to have antibody levels that actually ended up going down very quickly. So we're not sure about their ability to have long-term immunity or protection um, compared to people who got sick. People who got sick had antibody levels that were quite high. So that is another caution now that even if you think you're relatively healthy and aren't going to get very sick with COVID-19, um, just being positive for COVID-19 and having no symptoms at all doesn't mean that you're protected going into the future. We just It's too early to tell right now. Interesting. But those who had more severe disease have more antibodies that 
might yeah, protect them. They have a higher them. level of antibodies. And the caution around intrepidness is we don't know what level of antibody is protective yet. Um, if, you, if you tested positive and you said, hey, I didn't have any symptoms, but now I'm free and perhaps you can run around with your Superman T-shirt on um, outside, it, it's, it's not true. We're not, we're not sure. But the, the scary thing is that if you had a very mild case or no symptoms at all, but you were COVID positive, the antibodies were found to drop below very quickly. I see. I see. Something else I wanted to ask you about, and, and I look to the U.S. Um, in terms of thinking about this question, because I don't think we have, I, we have a little bit of it here. I saw about, you know, 10 or 11 people when I was driving in Surrey, British Columbia, standing up, you know, with some um, placards about, you know, fake news and we shouldn't be told not to wear masks. But um, we're in the U.S., that's, that seems to be a very contentious issue, whether to wear masks or not. And, and, you know, there are lots of videos that show Dr. Fauci several months ago saying, do not wear masks, they're not protective, they're for the health care providers. And now, um, you know, his tune has changed and suggesting that people wear face coverings or um, cloth masks. What are your thoughts on that? And, and do you understand how people would be less trusting when the advice changes, you know, it does a complete 360? Absolutely. And me a couple on this. Even earlier on, I was even saying, Maureen, I'm not sure if you were, that wearing masks um, really doesn't protect um, protect anyone. And that's what we thought back then when it was in March, because we thought people touched their faces more and it wasn't really truly protective and might give you a false sense of confidence. And we were saying to wash your hands and keep the two-meter distancing. Well, this, this is what happens with science. We get some new data, we get some new policies, we get some new guidelines, and you have to evolve. Um, and I think I think that's okay. The, the unfortunate, unfortunate thing, and first, what's frustrating in the U.S. is that it's become quite politicized. Wearing a mask means, you know, you're being subordinate to some power, and somehow you're giving up your freedom. When really, it's science. I mean, science evolves. So depending on the evidence that we have, our recommendations do continue to change. Um, and so, if we could look at it from just a scientific model rather than a political perspective, you know, I think it's totally okay to um, to, to change those recommendations as we, as we get more and more information. Um, and so so it's unfortunate, and you've probably been hearing some of the protests and some of the comments being made. Somebody was saying, well, how do I play the saxophone and breathe and wear a mask at the same time? Well, well, that's kind of not a reasonable question to ask, I think. Right. And then just quickly before we go to break, um, in terms of wearing masks outside, so somebody, somebody who's walking by themselves down the street, there's nobody around them, um, you know, there's at least 12 feet between people. Do they need to wear a mask? No, unless it's a fashion statement. It's not me to judge fashion, but um, but no, you're absolutely right. It's more for indoor spaces and when you can't distance, or outdoors like in transit, for example. Again, that's kind of quasi-indoor anyway. But but if you can't keep the two-meter distance, that's the most important spot. But you're right. If you're walking in a park and you're really distant from people, there's no need to be wearing masks. And then wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. And I've heard suggestions that when you go into a building, you know, wash your hands. When you come out of that building, wash your hands contact with anyone, wash your hands. Like, can, can we tell people to wash their hands as much? Absolutely. And, and if nothing else, wash your hands before putting on the mask, wash your hands after taking the mask off. Um, and, you know, sometimes people wear gloves just to remind themselves that they're touching things. And if you need that as a reminder, that's fine. But rather than gloves is, is washing your hands um, again and again. Yeah, I, I, th- I do have to say I struggle with, because, you know, you see people and you don't get a sense of how they are. You read their faces, and I didn't realize just how much I 
read people's faces or appreciated their smiles. You know, I, I miss those in seeing so many patients in particular who are wearing a mask and, you know, and it's hard. I, I understand it's hard for them and it's also hard to communicate and it's not just verbally because nothing can stop me from verbally communicating, but, um, you know, it's difficult to get all of the nuances around communication when people wear a mask. Yes, apparently there are some people that believe they should not wear a mask or underwear because some things just need to breathe. <laughs> That's just another reason um, that they'll, whatever, people will come up with. But on a much more serious note, uh, this virus, uh, you know, can display symptoms that are like the common cold or some people can become critically ill, requiring hospitalization. And it has been demonstrated through some recent research that there is an impact on the brain where people, although it's very uncommon, um, but some people can actually have a brain injury as a result. And when you're the one with that brain injury, I say it's 100% for you. Um, So the COVID-19, it affects more than the lungs. Absolutely, and and we've talked about this, is that it sets up an autoimmune, um, not an autoimmune, but an immune response, kind of like an autoimmune response, we'll call a cytokine storm. So it's not just the infection, but it's your your immune system kind of going on overdrive, and then that affects the heart, and there can be heart complications, kidney complications, um, and and brain complications. We've had many instances where patients that weren't in the ICU and on a ventilator, so when you're on a ventilator, typically it's what we call a medication-induced coma, so you're given medications just so that you can not fight the, the ventilator. And so for that reason, you would have some memory loss and not know what's going on because you're, you, you've been put in a state um, where you're not awake. But what they found that was interesting was that people that weren't put into that state um, but were just in the hospital, um, a lot of people are coming back kind of foggy. I've had patients say, you know, I was in the hospital with COVID-19, wasn't on a ventilator, but I don't remember those three days. I don't remember those four days. And it is a bit scary, and we didn't totally understand that. There's been now a study from the University of Gothenburg, which is in Sweden, and what they identified was that they actually checked markers, Marine, and the markers or, or um, um, chemicals that, that are same as the markers that, that are found when somebody has a brain injury were found in these patients that had COVID-19 infection. So what it's starting to tell us, we're learning so much, is that a lot of patients who aren't necessarily on a ventilator but get the COVID-19 infection, their brains can be affected and damaged, much like if they'd had a brain trauma. Um, and more to be studied, but it, but it now is starting to explain that sort of fogginess that's happening, um, that lack of sort of attentiveness and maybe even a loss of memory. So again, um, this, this condition is uh, keeps surprising us with all sorts of potentially serious complications. It certainly, and again, that was a small study. There were 47 patients with mild, moderate, and severe COVID-19 in the course of their hospital stay that were tested. So we do have to um, do continue to do the research. But I'm also curious if neuroplasticity uh, would be something that would be beneficial for patients who have that brain fog or who have had that brain injury, um, if it would apply to them. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think it's too early to comment uh, on that as well. Um, but, but the ones that are more resilient or come out with fewer um, sort of loss, you would think that, that that has played a role then. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're seeing patients with COVID-19. Is there a stigma associated with that? 
There is, there is to some degree. I think um, people who have it um, do find that they're a little bit more isolated or people are worried when they eventually do recover and come back into work or sort of school environments. Um, and, and and that's unfortunate. Um, when somebody's recovered, they've recovered and they're not any more contagious than anyone else. Um, but, but they themselves, um, you know, do have this sort of worry, am I going to pass it on? So fighting that anxiety that they have themselves is how is everybody else going to perceive me. Right, because I think people are, you know, kind of get away, you know, stay away from me. If you know anybody that is sick, I don't want to be, you know, near you in any way, shape or form. And, um, you know, certainly, I mean, I'm very mindful and you must be as well of being near people because we are with patients, uh, essentially, most and, days. And, and- and we're so cautious, and that's why when, you know, you and I spoke about this three or four weeks ago when people were crowding beaches and parts of the U.S., um, named states, but it's becoming obvious which ones they were, that opened up a bit too early. And unfortunately, that curves going in the completely wrong direction, and it's a sad. It's really sad. Places like Houston, Texas are at 97% capacity right now. Yeah, it's... And, uh, it's, it's, so it's going to be unfortunate if this continues to go up. It is, and it's too bad it's been politicized. But Dr. Parhar, thank you so much once again for joining me on the program tonight. Always awesome. Oh, always a pleasure, Maureen. Thank All you. Right. Hopefully you are with somebody who you've been in lover's lockdown with and quarantining and getting ready to uh, snuggle up to one another and do more than cuddle, hopefully. And then you can stay out of my office. <laughs> Um, but what if you have not been in lover's lockdown with somebody? Is it safe to have sex with someone that you are not quarantined with during this pandemic? This is something that is on a lot of people's minds. And, you know, quite frankly, a lot of people don't just like having sex on the mind. They like having sex. But there are some etiquette issues that we have to deal with in this pandemic. And, you know, we have some stay-at-home orders that are lifting in some areas. And, you know, of course, we think, ah, we're free. We can get out now. If you're thinking of having sex with someone you know or someone you've been in a relationship and you trust that this person is practicing social distancing, is hand washing. Keep in mind, according to research, men don't wash their hands as much as women do. You are ensuring that if they sneeze or if they cough, they are actually doing it into the elbow. And if they don't, you are to shame them big time. You have my permission. Um, Making sure that they are chronic hand washers and that they practice social distance and you want to know uh, where that person has been. You know, this has been the time, you know, typically before people have sex, even though they ask quite often, you know, is it okay to have sex on the first date? And it sure is, you know, whatever. It's up to you as long as it's mutual and consenting is the answer I will give you every time I am asked. Um, You know, there's no judgment and, you know, you're basically, if you're waiting um, because it's, it's a societal pressure that uh, you're being, you're putting on yourself and, you know, some you're trying to stay up to some standard anyway. And, uh, but that has changed in this pandemic. So say you've met somebody on a dating app and you've gotten to know them over the two or three months that we've been under lockdown Love here, you know, you really have to think, is getting a potentially deadly virus for you or somebody that you love worth the risk of a romp in the hay? I say, yeah. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, come on. We've got to lighten up. We've been in a pandemic. We are locked down. We are going crazy. <laughs> I am ready for a vaccine, okay? <laughs> I was loving the, the pandemic. People were actually saying, they were judging me, they were shaming me for making the most out of it. Biking and hiking and paddleboarding and, you know, and enjoying it and just cleaning my house obsessively. Every single drawer organized. <laughs> Every piece of clothing rolled up. Anyway, you can tell I'm losing my mind. But you know what? Any healthy relationship <laughs> needs safety and trust and emotional intimacy before physical intimacy. But that's not to say that, you know, physical intimacy cannot happen with, you know, in spite of the lack of emotional intimacy. That happens all the time. But what is emotional intimacy? You know, you can be in a long-term relationship with somebody and not have emotional intimacy. And that's why you may not be having sex with that person that you're in that relationship with because the emotional intimacy piece is lacking. And so what is emotional intimacy? It's talking, it's sharing, it's being vulnerable, it's being open, it's being able to talk about your desires and what pleases you and how you want to please your lover as well. You can certainly still practice emotional intimacy virtually or even from a distance. You can do this by talking on the phone. Tell me the ways you've done it. one 9898 Not exactly the ways you've done it, but the ways you have practiced emotional intimacy. This is why you have the Superman shirt on tonight, Brendan, and I don't. <laughs> Um, you know, be screening those calls, screening them heavily. (laughs) Exactly. Um, but you know what, during this pandemic, you really need to know with whom you are sleeping. It's not just a certain age demographic that, you know, might get COVID-19. We're actually seeing it, you know, depending on the outbreak. And that was the word I was looking for earlier in the show, depending on the outbreak, whether you're in Florida or whether you went to Brandy's exotic lounge, um, you know, (laughs) I just love the name of that place and I didn't actually get it right. It's actually Brandy's exotic show lounge. (laughs) Let me be specific. Several shout outs for them tonight. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it depends. And so there can be outbreaks of different demographics for sure. And you also cannot tell much like you cannot tell, you know, looking at someone face to face, if they have a sexually transmitted infection, you actually cannot tell by looking at people if they have coronavirus either. They may not show symptoms, but they can still be a carrier. And this is what is so scary about sex in the time of COVID-19. And and regardless of how much fun sex is or sex can be, or maybe sex used to be, um, before there's a vaccine, is it really worth your life? Um, Perhaps, perhaps not. Maybe you've had quite a dry spell and... (laughs) And now it's like, whatever. I've heard some of the health officials, and this is actually a serious suggestion, uh, to wear masks during sex because kissing does actually, of course, it's droplet nuclei, droplet, uh, respiratory droplets. And, um, and so you can actually contract, uh, COVID-19 through kissing. So, you know, the kissing is off the table, but during this time, it, this, actually offers people an invitation to think deeply about why you are desiring sex. What is it that you are getting from sex? And that 
may not sound like the brightest question. Keep in mind, I am blonde, but it leads to that aspect of, you know, is the benefit worth the risk? And I think we have to think about that with everything that we do in life, really. And so never has, you know, we, we were in this age prior to the pandemic where, you know, Tinder and Bumble and Match and everything, and you could just meet so many different people and you can just have sex with whomever you wanted at any time. And if they weren't good enough, there was, there was 500 more people behind them. And so it was so, uh, you know, going to work, people going into their offices and there was risk of, uh, you know, meeting somebody, perhaps you're married and meeting somebody in the workplace and, and having um, an affair. But those things have changed in this pandemic. Um, we don't do sex so casually with multiple partners anymore. And so is it a time that we should bring more mindfulness, more thought, more intention into our sexual decisions. It's something to think about. Uh, you know, for example, we talked about Tinder a little bit. And so, you know, you know, that you know it by now, swipe right, swipe left. Um, why doesn't anyone ever swipe right? Anyway, um, so, you know, you meet somebody on Tinder for, you know, and you typically in years past, you would have met for a hookup because it's, it's quite one of those sites that is a little bit more um, intentionally sexual. Uh, and, but now today, if you're on Tinder, you're kind of like, mm, you know, people just want sex on Tinder. Do I want sex? And you have to think, is a one-night stand really worth the risk of exposure? And, you know, I deal a lot in the sexless marriage. I see lots of patients in my clinical practice who are in sexless marriages. And sexless marriage is defined as sex less than 10 times a year. So that's less than three times during the pandemic. So <laughs> have you had sex more than three times during the pandemic? Let's hope so. Um, and so many people are in sexless marriages. And then with the additional stress of potentially losing your job or financial stressors or, um, you know, other ha schooling the children at home, uh, I have a text, yep, pretty lonely. Least I still eat cheesecake. Cheesecake is the theme of the show tonight. Um, you know, there's a, there's a huge loneliness quotient that goes along with this pandemic, especially if you are living alone, at least if you have kids, even though they're, you're homeschooling them and, and you have a partner, you're in a relationship where you live together or you're married, at least there's somebody else around that you can, that you can speak to. Um, but if you're living on your own and we're hoping maybe you're newly divorced or maybe you were ready after your divorce to meet somebody, um, you know, uh, but it's time now, you know, is it that you put your physical intimacy to the side for a while and, you know, focus on building an actual emotional connection with someone. But, um, and you can do that on an open hearted and, and a virtual level by all means, but it, it really certainly has changed um, the landscape for single people and, and those people who are in marriages where they're unhappy uh, because maybe they would have sought pleasure outside of the marriage. And I'm certainly not condoning this, but, but it also, it could allow them, I hear from a lot of patients in my clinical practice that, that their extramarital affair allowed them to stay in their marriage, to remain in their marriage. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to tar everybody here with the same brush for a moment. And, and it's, and I know it's not right, but in general, you know, men cheat to remain in a sexless marriage and, and women cheat to leave. Um, 
So, but if you, at the end of the day, decide the risk of a casual encounter is worth the benefit for you, then be sure to inquire about your person's or date's travel, recent travel, their health. I would take their temperature. They're hot, baby. No. Um, anyway, t- date's travel. <laughs> their health, their job, what they do for a living. So are they in healthcare? Are they on the front lines? Uh, risk goes up and, or do they not, are they not in contact with anybody? Um, and whether anyone, your, this person that you've met knows, uh, that has tested positive for COVID-19. So those are some things to look out for. So, you know, I think we should all probably carry around a thermometer, (laughs) from now on. Um, there's still some available on Amazon. I was shocked. Um, but anyway, I think we have to be more diligent and more vigilant. And, um, also, um, you know, if you want to go the extra mile, you know, there's nothing sexier than a mask during sex, but it certainly could be a good idea, especially if you are high risk or your partner is high risk or, or if you or your partner haven't been social distancing or strictly wearing masks. Um, you know, the, the kissing thing is something I hear from my clients, patients that, you know, goes out the window after, you know, eight, 10 years in a relationship. But until we understand this virus better, unfortunately, at the beginning of a relationship, kissing is, is on the table and, and kissing is quite much more common, uh, commonly associated with sex and intercourse and intimacy. But until we understand this virus better, uh, you know, maybe it's okay to enjoy sex at a distance, such as via texting, or wait to have sex with someone you know is virus-free, or somebody who has quarantined for 14 days, whether they've been out of the country or not, or somebody that you've built a real lasting connection. Somebody's going to be there for you when you get a COVID-19 positive test. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.